Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsession will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark out for a while. Hi, it's Jackie Cash, and welcome to the dark forest. It's the intro. This is where the credits and our monthly sponsor is mentioned. He's a good egg. It's Car D'Angelo over at Earth 2 Comics is sponsoring the Dork Forest this month. Earth 2 Comics is in Sherman Oaks. It's also in Northridge, California. And if you go into either one of those stores and you mention that you are a ranger of the Dork Forest, you will get 10% off your purchases. Very exciting. He Today is October 8th, and tonight is the Walking Dead party that starts Super late because it's October and October is spooky month. I love uh, Earth 2. Very, very supportive staff. They can help you find stuff. If you don't know what to get, you can sort of describe the kind of things that you like to read. And I don't know. If you go to the Sherman Oaks one, they might even tell you what uh, Maya and Andy's uh, pull list is. And then you can know more than you need to know about what kind of comic books to get. But Earth 2, super friendly staff. And they have everything. And if they don't have something in one store, they will send away to the other store and hook you up. And I recommend that you all go there. And I recommend that you mention the Dork Forest because then you get 10% off. There's the ad. In other news, JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com, TheDorkForest.com, AllThingsComedy.com is uh, the podcast network that the Dork Forest is on. And there's a lot of great podcasts over there. If you're looking for more pods, there you go. My stand-up uh, and live dork forests are on jackiecation.com. There's a chance to buy merch. There's a chance to go to the Amazon banner and buy whatever you want from Amazon and I get a kickback. The dork forest gets kickback. And other than that, there's t-shirts and CDs and the calendar. Oh, and the donation button, of course. Everyone should give me a hundred dollars a year. Do what you can. If you have to give it to me in four dollar increments, you're going to have to do the math because I don't know how to set that up. Uh, I've asked Mark Marin. He's told me twice. I still haven't done it. Anyway, let's get into the show. It's a good one. Hey, it's Jackie Cation. Welcome to the Dork Forest. Sitting with me, finally, Robert Hurt, space scientist artist guy. Hi, Jackie. <laughs> it is a delight to be here. And of course, it's Dr. Hurt to you. Oh, that's right. PhD in English? No. Uh, <laughs> such a jackass. Anyway, what is it uh, in your... What is your PhD in astrophysics. Jesus H. Christ, you're a rocket scientist. In, well, I'm a scientist whose science happens to happen on things that got launched by rockets, <laughs> which is subtle but different than being a rocket scientist. It is. It is. But uh, but you know the science of rockets. I, yeah, I can fake it to. at a cocktail party. Yeah. Right, sure. And And at one time you studied the science of rockets. Is that what astrophysicists is? is no, is no, no, no. We study everything else. We study everything else. What do you mean? Well, like, you know, yeah. once you get past the Earth, like, everything. Right. right. <laughs> everything. You mean the wallpaper that's up in the sky that doesn't have any aliens because of the... Bingo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Stars, planets, galaxies, cosmic microwave background. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it's all... Yeah. It, so, everything that you don't get at a liberal arts class, everything that's outside of us. Is, right. You know, so, so really, we really we have the bigger slice of the pie to play with. Fair enough. So, now... There are so many things we could, I've been trying to get you on the show for approximately seven years. Yes. And, uh, there could be anything. You have, you, you are known amongst your circle, which Andy Ashcraft is one of, <laughs> uh, for, for low these many years, uh, that, uh, you taped all of the next tracks, Star Trek Next Generations. Oh, of course, yes. And then 
edited all the commercials out. Yes. And this is all on VHS. Uh, and, uh, and everyone always came over to my place and for it. We it was a social group. moment. It was a social moment. You yeah. and 70 of your closest friends, which you continue to have. I, it is literally true that for the season premiere of The Best of Both Worlds Part 2, you know. Sure. You know, fire! He is a Borg. <laughs> That's all right. I had a little one-bedroom apartment and 35 people crammed into my living room to watch wow. my, it must have been like 12-inch TV set or something oh, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I love that, though, because that, that means that we all like each other because we're willing to go shoulder to shoulder. What I didn't tell you is that uh, my phone rings usually during the episode. Ah. It's usually not minute mm, two. <laughs> Okay, so there's, you can talk amongst yourself. I'll assume we'll edit this part out. No. No, no. No, no. That's even more, even more exciting. <laughs> well, I should turn my ringer on then, because let me even add more excitement if Rangers my Rangers of the Dark Forest are aware that a lot of things are happening. There's, you've been offered some Dove Dark Chocolates, uh, there's some cashews that have nuts in them. And, and York peppermint patties. And York Ooh. peppermint patties, which are kind of glamorous, <laughs> as we are here in October, uh, the time of candy. And uh, so uh, Andy's candy purchasing broadens somewhat. Usually it's just some sort of dark chocolate business and the cashews. But uh, clearly he's lost his mind. Uh, oh, wow. We have uh, Reese's peanut butter cups and York peppermint patties. <sighs> and The flan. insanity of it. It feels insane. Uh, I, how I deal with it is I tell myself, it's not my candy. It's his candy. You don't get to touch it. It's a uh, it's his candy. Yeah. If it's not dark, I'm not interested anyway. So. Well, he is. It's right. I don't, th- is- I don't think it is a dark chocolate York. I think that they used to have. This is a fascinating tale. I have better things to talk about with you. Uh, okay. <laughs> the universe, everything. <laughs> exactly. Number forty-two. Let's. Okay. So, is it? Do you work for Caltech, JPL, or NASA? Yes. Okay. Because In that order? Something like that. I, I work on the Spitzer Space Telescope mission, which is uh, one of NASA's four great observatory projects, the yes. cousin to the Hubble Space Telescope. Right. The, infra- the infrared part of the spectrum is what we deal with. And JPL is Jet, Jet Propulsion, Propulsion Labs, is a NASA facility that okay. is managed by Caltech for okay. NASA. Okay. So NASA gives Caltech a big check. And then they go run JPL, which then writes a check and hands it back to Caltech that pays me to work on the Spitzer mission that they do. Right. And what you do... And it took a PhD to understand that, actually, (laughs) in about five years. (laughs) I have, and you've been working there for a while, right? At least ten years, or yeah, I've uh, I've been working actually at the 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 facility, the Infrared Processing and Analysis Center, now for oh gosh, since like ninety seven, ninety six. Okay. Postdoc for a couple years, uh, worked on the two micron all sky survey, which was a ground based infrared mission that made the first high resolution digital map of the entire sky from the ground. Oh uh, wow! And so I worked on that as a quality assurance. Scientist, and then as we geared up for Spitzer, that was going to be the next big observatory project coming through. They basically created a job for me because on two mass, I'd already gotten a reputation of being really good at taking our data sets and turning those into really nice imagery. You know, to visualizing yeah. the data very effectively. Because right. when, whenever I tell people, I simplify what you do, which belittles the 20 years of work you've put in. But what I like to do is I like to say, he makes art out of the pictures in the sky. I doubt works. <laughs> which, which is what you do. I mean, it, when, when someone sees, this is what the, the Milky Way looks like from the Spitzer. This is what this image looks like. This is an image from the Spitzer. It's been colored. It's been clean, cleaned up. It's been cleaned up in many, many ways, right? right? So you get raw data. 
Right. What is the, what does the raw data look like? I mean, so well, like any telescope. There's a telescope in where is the Spitzer? Okay, what first is of all, the Spitzer? Spitzer, Spitzer is it's an infrared telescope. So to do infrared light properly, you actually need to be very very cold because you know everything emits light. I mean, you emit light, I emit okay. light, but we emit it I glow. in the infrared. You glow, you yes. do. <laughs> and if I had our 10 micron camera, I could take a picture and show you that you were positively glowing. You're hot. Uh, the um, uh, but. Because of that, trying to take a picture in the infrared using a warm camera is like trying to take a photograph when you open up the back of the camera and let light flood in, right? The camera oh. itself is emitting the same light that you're trying to actually take a picture of. Right. So what you have to do is you have to cool the entire camera down to be a lot colder than the thing that you're actually trying to photograph. Okay. And so, so that, so that it isn't registering. Right, so you're right. taking a picture of the only the only heat and light that there is. Right. Okay. So in order to do that, you a couple of ways you can do it. You can take the whole telescope and stick it in a bath of like liquid helium. Okay. And, and or what the way Spitzer was designed was you take a telescope telescope and you design it in such a way that if you kick it away from the Earth, because the Earth is also very warm, Earth right. radiates a lot of heat and it warms up in the sun and everything. By pushing Spitzer away from Earth, we actually kicked it off into its own orbit around the sun. And so it's sort of slowly falling behind the Earth, you know, as it cycles around and around the sun. And oh. right now, Spitzer is actually further away from the Earth than we are from the sun, just sort of back along the Earth's orbit. Okay, so is it following the Earth's orbit or is it on its own orbit in a in sort of an oblong kind of way, so it will eventually hit Pluto and then out be in the world. It's, it's in a circular, more or less circular orbit, like the Earth, just okay. a slightly larger one. Okay. So it takes a little longer than a year to go around. Okay. So from our point of view, from our very Earth-centered point of view, we call it an Earth-trailing orbit because okay. we just see it trailing, drifting further and further away from us over time. Okay. And as a result, though, that just means we have only need all we need is one sun shield to protect Spitzer from the the, the sun, and oh. we have you know solar panels on that to generate electricity. And then the the other part of the telescope, the outfacing part, is actually painted black, and black radiates heat very effectively into space. So the Spitzer acts like this little mini heat pump. You know, the part that's facing the sun warms up. And it's all like thermally insulated from the telescope, right. electronics, and that's all thermally insulated from the telescope. But the telescope, it basically just, just dumps its heat off into space. And even without any coolant, Spitzer sits around 30 degrees above absolute zero. Okay. And then when we had coolant, we actually could cool it down as much to like four or so degrees above absolute zero. Right. We ran out of coolant about halfway, about five and a half years in the mission, but there's still an instrument that actually continues to work. Is because it being that remotely organ? Uh, can you affect it remotely? Well, it's not like, you know, a little Wii controller or anything, right. but uh, yeah, it's like daily, we do daily uplinks to it and uh, basically give it its next set of instructions of which okay. things you want to observe. Right, and, and you have to be able to download stuff. It has yeah. to transmit the, the images that it gets, right? Right, exactly. Okay. And our limiting factor these days is more uh, the downlink speed because we're so, it's so far away from the earth now, the data rate, actually is a lot lower now than it was five years ago. Okay. So, so it's kind of, we're moving more in towards like trying to get our data down over like an old audio modem rather than through a DSL connection. Okay. You know? So, uh, yeah, but it, it, it's still collecting wonderful data sets um, uh, in, in a couple of the wave bands. But then what we get back from it, of course, is it's, you know, all infrared detectors, all detectors really are, you, you effectively get a single grayscale image. You put a filter in front or you have a detector that's built to work with a particular range of wavelengths of light. So it and doesn't look like the, okay, again, okay. very simple. Jackie Cation, not a science lady. <laughs> uh, predator. <laughs> That's what I think of when I think of infrared. What am I not? 
the Predator. Well, so the Predator movie. <laughs> the Predator movie does a great job of uh, of kind of introducing people to this idea because what's happening in what happened in Predator, right? Yeah. The idea of the thermal emission. Yeah. They're, they're basically getting a grayscale image of light and dark, things that are bright and faint. You know, right. The Predator vision is really only working at sort of one band of light. Yeah. But to make it more visually interesting. Instead of just showing it as a black and white Woody Allen picture, right? <laughs> the Annie Hall version. The Annie of Hall version of Predator, right? Uh, they just went ahead and applied a, a a gradient of color to it, so that the stuff that's black maybe was still dark, right? And then the the gray stuff was purple, and it went on up to yellow and blue and right. you know, multispectral. And so that's what they did was a, an act of an act of visualization because they found a way to transform this simple grayscale data into some kind of colorful thing that you could then maybe get excited about or interpret. Right. Right. Which is what you do. Which is what I do. Yes. Okay. Cause so what I have is how to go from data to picture is what we're sort of, we're in the middle of, right? Right. right. And then visible light versus the rest of the spectrum have we talked about that? Not really, but we can certainly do that. Let's the, touch uh, briefly on it just because I, the infrared being non-visible light, right? right. Or So the thing, uh, I guess one cool thing about light that I think people don't really appreciate, we're very, we're very egocentric and we think of light as yellow and blue and green and that's it, right? The, the, right. If it's, if it's not visible, it's not light. But it's sunlight. It's, it's sunlight. sunny. <laughs> but the sun emits a hell of a lot more than visible light. Now it's brightest. In the right. visible part of the spectrum, but it actually emits light across ultraviolet, right? You know, we, our sunburn rays, it, okay. you know, it's warm, it emits infrared, it even emits a little bit of microwave and radio faintly. Okay. The, the, and what's interesting is there's really nothing fundamentally different about x-rays or, or ultraviolet or visible light or infrared. It's just, it's just what we call electromagnetic radiation. It's, it's just, just is the waves. Wave? It's just waves of electric and magnetic fields. The only thing that's different between an X-ray and green yeah. is that X-rays have a much shorter wavelength. And the our fields are spaced more closely. See them. And our eyes can't see them. And uh-huh. bang, goes right through our eyes. Actually, <laughs> so uh, it's like Hence nothing the- doesn't stop to detect it. We just biologically, over you know billions of years, because our sun is actually brightest. Around a range of you know 400 to 800 uh, uh, nanometers. Okay. Guess what? That's where biology found. Let's make let's evolve little detectors that work best in that part of the spectrum. Okay. And so, well, our bias of what we count as visible mm-hmm. is a pure consequence of natural evolution evolving light detectors that are going to work in the part of the spectrum where there's more light to work with. Okay. If if we were it offered um, us that light, and that's the way we. We evolved to make use of that light. Exactly. Okay. Now here's here's the dirty secret of Superman. I the, think. Oh. Because the, welcome you know, to the dark. Because we all know. Because we all know that Superman comes from Krypton, which orbits a red star, right? Oh, right. Yes. And Krypton's sun, as a red star, a cooler star, probably emits most of its light in the infrared. Okay. Because the reason the star would look red is that its spectrum is dropping off quickly in the visible, which means it's probably peaking once you go into the, the oh. infrared, which means that probably Superman and all Kryptonians would actually see infrared light, not what we think of as visible light. Okay. And or X-ray? Or, uh, no, not, well, they wouldn't have it evolved to see it. See, they wouldn't see X-ray at all because X-rays, there'd be almost no X-rays coming out of their sun. You know, no, even hardly any uh, ultraviolet. So what about on this planet, though? So, what- so Superman really ought to have had infrared vision, okay. not X-ray vision. Right, so, right. 
Uh, Biologically, you know, evolutionarily, Superman doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'll tell you something. Another mistake, DC. Stop micromanaging things. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so. But, but by, but by pushing to these longer wavelengths in the infrared, the reason we built a telescope is that, uh, you know, every, every color of the spectrum tells you something different about what's going on. Visible light, we see things that are actually really, really hot. Things like the sun. Okay. Sun's like, you know, 5,000 degrees. Okay. And that means it peaks in the visible part of the spectrum, you know. Uh, things that are about just a thousand degrees or hundreds of degrees, they put most of their light out in the infrared. So the infrared lets oh. us actually see things that are cool in the universe instead of things that are hot. Oh. And cool things are, which are also pretty cool, right. are like <laughs> the vast clouds of dust that fill the galaxy and the cocoons of dust that stars and planets form inside of. Uh, so space, hmm, another very basic question, not empty. Space is not empty. It's not, again, our visible bias that we see in visible light, just the hot things, those pinpricks right. of stars in the night sky, kind of bias us to think of the whole universe as an empty space with just a few little pinpricks in it. Yeah, but in yeah. fact, if we naturally saw infrared and we looked out in the sky, it would be just filled with glowing dust and clouds and everything just wow. vivid. There's a tremendous amount of interesting stuff going on between the stars. As right, well. right. So, and, and I'm sure, but it would be distracting if, if it were between here and the, uh, the atmosphere. Like if the, if we could see infrared and we just looked out the window, it would be very busy. Am I correct? It, it would. It would. There's in Possibly fact, that's why busy. we, and that's why we throw them into space, our, our telescopes, because right. our, our atmosphere actually, there are few narrow bands of infrared that actually make it through our atmosphere. Okay. Telescopes that see. Okay. And, um, like the two micron sky survey worked at bands out to about two microns. But once you get past, Two, three microns. Our atmosphere is mostly opaque until okay. you start getting out into the radio and then it, or the, the millimeter waves and then it starts coming through. So for those bands though, our atmosphere just totally blocks it. So that's why we put telescopes in space so they have a nice clear view of it. Okay. Wow. All right. So how long has the Spitzer been out there? Spitzer launched in, uh, August of 2003. And so we okay. actually just had our 10th anniversary celebration. Yeah. And, uh, and a big so party ten years. Ten years. Okay. So, um, you, now, what I was given is hated words, hated, hated terms. Uh, this is, uh, uh, my last episode was with James Adomian, stand up comedian, very funny man, mm-hmm. a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Oh. Uh, and he says to me, you know, that's pejorative, conspiracy theorist. <laughs> so, uh, we, we, we changed that to, uh, a guy that, it has some info. I don't know what we changed it to, but uh, <laughs> the uh, so you don't like colorize. I don't even like colorization. So um, exactly, colorize and false color. What does that mean? So getting back to the, your it? your original questions, were about how do we visualize these images? Right, we're, yeah. we're, we we collect this data. This in, it's intrinsically sort of black and white. It is in the data. Woody Allen kind. It of. is in the Woody Allen, but we can collect it at different bands of the spectrum. Right, okay. we have uh, the Spitzer had you know one detector that worked in the near Newer infrared wavelengths that had four different wavelengths it detected. It had a different imager that did three longer wavelength bands. Okay. So, you know, each, but what we get is a single band of data and sort of grayscale brightness once we grid it up and, you know, plot it out. And what we have to do though is we want to make imagery, we want to combine as much of that data together as we can. Now, our eyes see three bands of light that 
we piece together to see all the colors that we see. Okay. Red, green, and blue. Okay. You know, you go up your TV set and you take a magnifying glass to it. You only see three kinds of pixels on it. There's red, green, and blue phosphors. Oh, and then they mix to make the other colors. And they mix to make all the other okay. colors. Is everything's uh, proportional. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, our, if you work with computers at all, you know, your, your data, your, your Photoshop documents have a red channel, a green channel, a blue. And when you assemble them all together, you get all the colors. Okay. So we can, now, of course, in, your camera does the same thing. It actually has detectors that have little filters detecting red and green and blue, and it puts it together and you get a color image. Okay. Well, it just does that all behind the scenes, and so you don't really think about it. We yeah. always take the red light and we make it show it as red, and the green light we show it as green, like that. Yeah. We don't have to, though. I mean, it's computers. You can mix things up. Right. So what we do, of course, to visualize colors beyond our ability to see is to take different bands outside, say, the visible spectrum, but then bring them back in and assign them to red, green, and blue for display. Okay. So the colors, we generate color images, and the colors are real. They're just not the same colors that we see. Okay. I mean, if or I that tried, we would see. Or that we would see, right. Okay. You know, if I, if I showed you an actual true color infrared image, it would look blank. Because would, you can't see infrared, so right. that showing <laughs> showing you the actual infrared the way it looks would do you no good. So w- when the infrared images come in from the Spitzer, they come on a gray scale. Yes. Okay. And then and then then we and they're make choices wavelengths or what? So we we know it comes in at different wavelengths, like right. three point six, four point five, eight, twenty four, yeah. whatever. We pick which ones we want to emphasize, which one maybe have the the, uh, the interesting science that we're trying to do or right. have good interesting features that are different at one band than another. Then we slot, re-slot them into red, green, and blue to bring out uh, a color representation of what it really looks like in the infrared. Right. So if you want to show like the, the, the rings around Saturn or something and or the... Could we see the rings around Saturn? Well, actually, Saturn is actually so blindingly bright to Spitzer. Spitzer is so sensitive. We can't yeah. even point it at the Saturn. planets. <laughs> Though, oh. interestingly, one of Spitzer's really coolest discoveries over its the last 10 years was Spitzer actually discovered a new ring of Saturn we didn't know about. It's its largest ring. There's this huge ring around Saturn that actually goes out as far as some of its outer moons. And... It only can be seen in the infrared because it's made of very fine dust particles. Oh, wow. And so we were actually, we'd actually position the camera off of Saturn. It was sort of glaring off the side. Yeah. And this band, like, just showed up in the frame. <laughs> and then they reconstructed it. It actually is thought to be tied to, um, the outer moon Phoebe that, that probably kicks up dust when, when things hit it. Okay. It actually explains why the moon Enceladus has like a dark side because the dark side is probably where it's sweeping up material from this otherwise invisible ring that right. you have to go in the infrared to see. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Sorry, that's, side note. <laughs> so, no, no, because I wonder about like the, th- like what, what have you, like, because, so if somebody tells you the science, they're like, we want to point out that there's, we found this new ring and right. it's made out of this super fine material, which is why it came up on this infrared. And so we need you, Robert Hurt, to emphasize that by picking the colors that would best uh, show that. Is right. that correct? Right. Okay. What's, what's another thing that you've, 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 <laughs> what's, what's another science thing that, that you've pointed out, I guess, is well, a very basic question. Well, so what's interesting is, is, so my job is fun because it's half scientist, half photographer. Because what's interesting about the way the data comes down is it has like it has this trim- full dynamic range, right? I mean, you take a photo, you have to actually choose. Or I'm a, how are you setting the exposure on it? Am I right. exposing for the dark part or the light part? Be- and you only get like part of the image. You know, yeah. the window might. If I took a picture in this room of you, 
you know, everything outside would be totally blown out because you can't see it. Right. Well, astronomical data actually comes in with much higher dynamic range. So the first thing we almost have to do is just decide what's the exposure? What part of the image are we bringing in? Okay. And there are actually ways that we can compress the dynamic range of the whole image so you can actually see both the faint stuff and the bright stuff, which pushes in a kind of non-linear realm that's different than what we're used to in just, you know, a snap and click photo. Perspective-wise? Or- uh, no, just... Um, uh, well, there's, there's actually a kind of photography that's more popular even now called HDR photography, high dynamic range. Okay. Where you might take a whole series of exposures at different, uh, um, different exposure settings. Yeah. And then combine them to a single image and then reprocess it in a way that you can see both the darks and the lights. Okay. This is very popular now in, in traditional photography. But astronomers have actually been doing this for, for, for decades now. That's actually kind of part and parcel of what we do. Okay. And so, you know, so part of it is looking at the data and deciding, you know, what's the full dynamic range of the image? Do we have to like kind of place mathematical calculation on top of it to kind of scrunch it down so we can see the bright stuff and the faint stuff? You know, yeah. Where is, what, what, what's the interesting part of the image? Yeah. Then we take the different channels that we've observed and assign them into colors like red and green and blue. And then we sort of want to choose which color, which bands of light go into which colors. Then we end up producing a color image. Yeah. Now, traditionally, historically, these this kind of imagery has been called false color imaging. Be- I, because essentially you're creating color where there was none? Is that what the Well, see, that's is? the problem. That's what it sounds like. You, yeah. It sounds like you're creating color where there was none. I mean, when you think, you know, you know false testimony you think something is a lie, right? Right. You, right? you know, a false witness. Someone isn't really saying the right thing. You know, uh, uh, false is a bad word because it's loaded with this idea that there's something, uh, that you're conspiracy, right. a conspiracy <laughs> right. to, to right. hide talk what's about, going on, right? Talk about pejorative. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but it was, the term was innocuously created to try to set apart the idea. Again, in the, in the seventies, when this term first surfaced, all we did was, the way we made color images is just make red, green, and blue is red, green, and blue. We put photographic film in a telescope, and we got a color image out. Okay. And there was this need when we first started pushing into different parts of the spectrum or processing it differently to make sure people didn't think this was the actual red, green, blue color of something. So the term false color came up to say as a little warning, oh, this is actually a different way of just looking at something. Just to be aware of right. it. Right. Now, of course – all of astronomy is false color today. I mean, there's almost no astronomy ever done in red, green, blue. Okay. Even the stuff that's done in visible light usually uses very narrow little filters around certain certain uh, features that, say, hydrogen gas puts out or, or silicon or, or carbon. And then we recombine it in a way that would not be the color your eye would see anyway. Okay. So to call the entire field of astronomical visualization false color, it, you know, it we don't... It seems like a punch in the throat for it, no reason. It does. And, and everybody, What's all my colleagues, to, yeah. all my colleagues who do the same thing for Hubble and for the Chandra X-ray Observatory, <laughs> for, for European... So, like, we've all... We get together every occasionally for meetings and trade, you know, right. secrets and tips and tricks. And, and we all hate false color and we're trying to we're lobbying to get people to really just describe it for what it is instead of saying it's a false color image say it's it's a it's an infrared color image or a yeah. representation of infrared data yeah a uh, term i particularly like is translated color it's oh you know, i like translated yeah. color i mean if i if i show that's you exactly what you're doing well exactly you know if i show you a copy of the art of war in the original chinese it means nothing to you but if i show it to you in english right you're like oh okay that's in English. It's a translation. It's not a false 
copy right. of the book. <laughs> right. It's a translation. Right. It's a, yeah, you're, you are now able to comprehend the book that was in Chinese. Exactly. And yeah. so that's exactly what we're doing with color. We're, we're, we're translating it from a different part of the spectrum. It's real color. Yeah. It's really there. If your eye actually worked in that spectrum, you would be able to see that variation. Right. But it's been translated into something that you can see. Right. It's, yeah. And now you can see it and now you can understand the science and you can understand the math and you can, and, 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 uh, and appreciate have an idea. the beauty. And appreciate the beauty of it. That is one of the, I mean, is there a website where a lot of your images, like if people wanted to scroll through some of the images that you've worked with? Yes. Actually, in fact, there's been a a really intriguing project that, uh, again, the kind of the visualization community I'm involved with has been um, uh, working on for many years. Uh, We actually have a website that's kind of in a beta form now called Astropix. Astropix. Um, Astropix.ipac.caltech.edu. I I will link that. Link it, uh, yes. Astro, is it P-I-C-S? P-I-X. P-I-X, Astropix. Right. And what we've done on this site is a lot of the key observatories right now, uh, the Spitzer, uh, Hubble, Chandra, the European Southern Observatory, we have all been taking our imagery, the ones that we've we've really prettied up, released. We've translated into uh, really nice, clean, public-friendly images. Okay, it has all this extra information: uh, wavelengths and which telescopes went to which colors, and and exactly what part of the sky it's seeing. in. All this, yeah. We've folded this into a, uh, a metadata format. Ooh, metadata—that's a Ooh. yeah. Well, it, does, it's, it sounds you important. play with, and we 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 basically embed the descriptive information in the image. Okay, and then they all feed. The their, their assets into one location. And so we now have this new Astropix website that aggregates all of the imagery that's all the public imagery imagery that's been released oh. from these different telescopes into one site. So you can find it all without having to go and search like, you know, like what did Hubble see when it right. landed itself at that point, part of the sky. Exactly. Okay. So we've got now uh, close to 4,000 images there from, you know, wow. over a dozen telescopes. Okay. And, uh, and the, not everything gets tagged at the same depth, but some of the ones that have been tagged most deeply, you actually get little widgets that show you how far away the object is, you know, a little oh, graphical cool. thing that kind of gives you a hint of, you know, is it in the Milky Way or in the nearby universe? Uh, we actually have one of my favorite features apropos to this conversation yeah. is that if it's been fully tagged with the color representations in the image, you get a little, little, um, spectrum and little color indicators showing what color of the image is pointing to what part of the spectrum. Oh. And so you can actually look at each image. It gives you a translator's guide yeah. to what the colors actually mean. That's awesome. Like a key. Like, like, a, like key. a map key. Like a map key, exactly, to color. Oh, cool. And this is, and this is I think, um, this is what's so interesting about what's happened to astronomy in the last couple of decades. Because you know, when I was a kid, all the astronomy images pretty much looked the same because they were all done red, green, blue is red, green, blue. Every, yeah. We just worked in the visible spectrum. So, so nebula kind of glowed red, uh, dust clouds that were, had diffuse scattered light all looked blue, yeah. stars, galaxies were all kind of whitish. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, there was a very common palette because that's, that was the visible palette. But with the advent of, you know, multi-wavelength astronomy through the eighties and nineties and beyond, what happened was our palette began to change because as you start looking at different slices, the way light combines from different parts, you get a different kind of color palette. So, so today every kind of mission has its own palette of color that goes with it. You know, Spitzer has a couple of very specific palettes we use because I tend to use the same mappings over and over again for the, for the same data combinations. Okay. I'll assign them to the same colors. So you will well, see this makes, kind of color that appears again and again. That makes so much sense because then, you know, it, it's that, 
It's like when Apple says that things are intuitive, right? But they're only intuitive if you use them often enough, exactly. and then you're like, and then you switch to a different device that has that same operating system or that same kind of interface. So if you're using the same color palette for the same kind of data, like that's a dust cloud, it's going to be sort of a yellowish white, right? And uh, and then you go to it, you point it at the sky in a different place, and there's a dust cloud over there, and you can use yellowish white over there too, right? And then if I looked at those images enough, I could go, oh, that's probably a dust cloud. And that's exactly what happens with with the scientists who work with it too. And oh, I mean, cool. one of the more enjoyable parts of my job is the fact that I have more powerful tools. I.e. Photoshop. Right. Well, <laughs> for I was gonna actually ask you building, about that. yeah, building these color representations of the data sets than what uh, it typically exists in science analysis tools. The the one area where I think astronomy is really really uh, lagging analytically is data visualization because we have incredibly primitive the, the the visualization tools for just creating color imagery yeah. that, that are used in science analysis. They have not changed the way you manipulate color and contrast. In over 20 years, they, they, they never, they haven't, you so don't even haven't have a created- levels adjustment. Okay. <laughs> you don't even have a levels adjustment in, in astronomy per se. And it's, and the metaphor is work. And in fact, would again, that be I, on the, on the, on the Spitzer, the levels adjustment? No, or? I mean, uh, this is, I mean, in the tools that you use, once you have the data set and you're analyzing yeah. it, I mean, you have the, this incredibly ancient way of doing this that doesn't let scientists generally create, they, they, they can't easily explore the subtleties of, Really just tweaking very comfortably and casually a little bit of the data set to bring out these intrinsic hues. And so when you, when you really can dig in the data set and you know what's in the science, right? And you're trying right. and you can adjust it. You can, you can be very, very, um, subtle with how you do the colors. And so that actual, even very subtle differences in color tell you something about what's going on. The density or the, or, but like, what, what do you look like the diff? Are you talking about like the density or the, or right? The well, it's the density and the proportions. Okay. I mean, uh, there are areas like, um, there's this beautiful, uh, nebula in GC 1999 or 1399 that, um, is a region where there are a lot of baby stars. And when baby stars are in the later stage of forming, they tend to spray out what we call bipolar jets, material that's kind of like blown out of the top and upper and lower axes of the, the stars, like the spinning disc. Yeah. Kind of like blows balloons into the space off on either side. And, uh, that's one way we can trace where the stars are. It, sometimes, it, especially in visible light, you can sometimes see those jets, yeah. even though you can't see the protostars. And, but you can trace back, they must oh, be you pointing. Can... You, you can start figure out where the protostar must have been because you know where the jets are pointing. Got it. Now, in, vis- now in infrared light, we can actually start, to, we can actually see through the dust okay. to the protostars because that's the other thing you get with infrared. Right. As the wavelengths of light get longer, they are actually, the, the light itself, the wavelength starts to get larger than the size of the dust particles. Okay. And so the dust particles don't really obstruct it so much anymore and it, it passes through. So we can see into these clouds that right. you can't see in visible light. But when you look at a region like that, these jets, they, they, they glow for one set of physical reasons. They, they have a, there's an impact going on between material being sprayed out from the, uh, the star yeah. as it impacts the other dust and gas arounding it, okay. uh, around it, <laughs> around it, around it, yeah. uh, uh, causing it to sort of light up as it stimulates different molecules to, uh, to reemit light. Okay. So that has a particular color to it. The dust itself is actually becoming visible in part because it's reflecting light from the nearby starlight as well, that takes on a kind of different hue. And when you actually can go in there and adjust it really correctly, 
you can actually tell the difference between the aquamarine dust yeah. and the yellow-green bubbles. Right. And then there's like the reddish dust that's actually fluorescing under a different kind of illumination. But that these kind of subtle things are actually very hard to bring out in the analysis software. But I can do imagery and- that I can show back to the, the investigators, and then they can use the color to help them see more of what they're doing so there's research. analysis software that they're trying to work with as scientists, and there is Photoshop, which is what you're working in? Right. So they haven't – nobody's written better analysis software that matches Photoshop. Right. I mean, there are some really basic concepts in Photoshop, a curves adjustment, um, a yeah. gamma adjustment. We but don't could, have a gamma adjustment in any of the the core analysis tools like DS9 or, right, or right. Uh, IRAP. It just it's not there. It's very simplistic. Uh, the that, that uh, could that could easily be yeah. added to this software. Right, and we uh, we actually developed um, a, a program that the, the sort of the astronomy visualization people. Um, we actually kind of collaborated, and uh, the the uh, the kind folks out in Garching, Germany, actually brought in a, a team to program something what we call the Photoshop Fits Liberator. <laughs> Fits is the data format the astronomy data comes in. Okay. And so we at, way back in the day we figured we we needed a piece of code that would let us liberate the picture from that archaic format that. It's okay. hard to actually see. And, oh, right. So you and, can transfer it. So we transfer it. We create it into a fits, fits format. Yes. We liberate it into a, a, like a TIFF file that anyone can, can then read. And part of that was we came up with very flexible algorithms for how we do this, this dynamic range stretch I was telling, you know, right. instead of just, there are ways you can adjust and rescale and you get incredibly subtle control over, over, you know, do you want a thousand to one dynamic range or, or to, to yeah. really bring out the, the, the faint features as well. It lets us do something that's much more sophisticated than what a research astronomer can do with their tools. Mm-hmm. And it would be really easy to fold this back in. And But it's like we haven't had a lot of good communication, I think, from the visualization community and the research community to really build sort of the next generation of tools. And we're looking to improve that in the future, too. And would they have to – and would there have to be sort of a relearning – but you'd think scientists – well, that's not true. I've used Photoshop so very basically mm-hmm. that maybe they would there would have to be retraining of the scientist for that analytic – you know, for them to use an updated software set. It's it's always true, and and scientists, are, astronomers are can be a surprisingly uh, luddite group when you right. get around to it. It's, for for people that, that <laughs> breathe, eat, and and sleep computers to do their analysis, there is a surprising resistance to like change as well. Right. But right. that's in part because you're so stressed out and so busy, you know. Investing time to learn a new process is, right. is and tough. You're, and, you know, you're, you're trying to get that paper out. <laughs> right. You're trying to get that paper out and you're also looking into space and you're like, it's, it'll be fine. What, yeah. This, this, I'll figure it out on this thing. And yeah. I, I get that. I get that. But it would be, yeah, if, if they took a, a month or a week or even eight hours to learn these, this, this new software that doesn't exist. Right. Uh, it would, it would probably make your job not, I mean, it would make their job, I think, easier, right? It would, it would, and more fun. I mean, the other thing is just we really have to improve the the, the GUIs on astronomical <laughs> software. It's just so right. Uh, it's a very we're very a uh, we're very command line kind of crew, uh, right? You know, oh, Unix right. like yeah, like yeah. type, right? And uh, I, I I still have a lot of colleagues who actually use things like Pine for any of your 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 Unix and VMS geeks out there to might recognize to read their email, you know, command line email utilities. It's oh like, my gosh! Yeah, yeah. You know, I had Lee uh, Bennett on the yes. on the show talking DC Comics. <laughs> a lot of Green Lantern, a lot of Green Lantern talk, <laughs> and uh, and he had, 
when I picked him up, or I think I met him for dinner to talk about doing the show, um, he was like, well, do you want to see, you know, to see my work? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he took me into a very cold room with a bunch of computers in it. And I was like, dude, what else is there? Show me something. Show me something. I mean, that's neat. I mean, I love a so computer. So a petabyte of spinning disk just does not excite you very much, does it? Well, when he told me it was a petabyte, I was excited. I'm not going to lie to you. I think it was, it was cool. Yeah. But it was very funny that he was like, see all these computers? Look how cool they are. Yeah, well, the part that you need to remember is cool is that you can go in through – anyone can log in. Web inter- Actually, you don't even log in. You just go to a web page and you say – there's this galaxy I want to look at, like M83, and you type in the galaxy, and you I'm doing this. What is the website? Uh, uh, ursa.ipac.caltech.edu. Uh, I warn you, you it's a little uh, IRSA. IRSA, okay. The, the Infrared Science Archive. Ursa. Okay. And so I could Google Infrared Science Archive. You can. And then that EDU would come up probably. Exactly. There we go. And, uh, and you can go in. It's Again, it's an astronomer interface, so it's a little clumsy, but it's, it's not that hard to figure out. But you can actually call up imagery from visible light, from infrared, from Spitzer, from Herschel, from, uh, from the, all of them? the Ys, from all of them. Uh, the two micron all sky server, right? It's all what, there and you can get. What's a good looking galaxy? What should I type in? Well, um, what's M80, one of your favorites? <laughs> well, certainly today M83 is one of my favorites. Okay. I, uh, the, uh, it's a beautiful spiral galaxy. Uh, but to connect it back to yeah. imagery for a moment, I gotta say, so I just last night I went to the M83 concert. Oh, uh, did you? You know, a what is wonderful, that? wonderful electronic artist. He, uh, uh, has, is that uh, a band? It's a band. Okay. Yeah. And, and named and, after the M83. Named after, he's, he's actually a French, uh, electronic artist based here in LA. And, but his, his band is named after the galaxy, uh, Messier 83. I, oh, that I verified is a, that. that. That is a dude that is deep in the dork forest. Oh, he's oh. got his own tree. Oh, he absolutely, he he's absolutely building a does. tree house. He, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Hurry Up or Dreaming is his latest album. Uh, okay. Uh, Midnight City is like a big hit. Everyone knows, but, but he also, uh, got tapped, uh, to do the score for Oblivion. Uh, okay. The, the big Tom Cruise movie earlier this summer, which actually oh, my, right. one of my favorite scores of the summer. Okay. It was awesome going to the concert. Sit down. Uh, the first, second song comes up. Backdrop pops in. I did that image. Did you do that image? He used like four different Spitzer images as backdrops for songs through the course of the at least four. Uh, several other, some Hubble things had got you in done, there too. Have you done most of them? And I, uh, I definitely had done three of them, and one was a collaborative one that oh. was a great observatory image. And I, I was just, I was just. Yes! Freaking out so all night long crazy. because not only was he using this imagery, each image was then setting the color theme for the light show for each song. Oh. And that's the Spitzer Galactic Center <laughs> image and it's like got all those lovely blues and reds. It's like, oh my god, this is so cool. It really so, is. So yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, and that for me is the ultimate success when the imagery that we put out there to help communicate and enthuse people about science yeah. can permeate into popular culture to the point that it's like the glowing backdrop at the Hollywood Bowl that thousands yeah. of people are looking at. Yeah. And it's, um, uh, yeah, I yeah, mean, that's that. when, when we can really stimulate that kind of excitement and enthusiasm and, and I can count as a personal, uh, success because Hubble is so well known. Hubble has hit, you know, Pop culture, one inside to the other. It is the reference, but it is. But there's so much more than Hubble that, that works yeah. out. You know, the, there is a whole spectrum out there, and Hubble only sees a part of it. Mm-hmm. I am just astoundingly gratified to see that M83 uh, is is actually is aware of the Spitzer work. Is aware of the Spitzer work and yeah. the, the, the the spectrum. So yeah, I, I was just 
floating yes. off somewhere in near Why Alpha Centauri you like last night. <laughs> so you get photo credit? Is there photo credit on those things? No. No, 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 no. no, it's no because no it comes credit. out of the Spitzer. Because yeah, it comes yeah. out of the, the production of the and they, and they play around. They, they put some warps and twists in to make it a little... So I was like, I knew it, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you I, I don't fuss. I mean, after I fuss with those pixels, pixels for a while, right? I, I, it's like, yes, I would recognize that galactic center anywhere, even if you did apply a Photoshop pinch filter and a little bit of rotate to make it a little stylish <laughs> on the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get get some could, curves that match the right? curves of the Hollywood Bowl. Sure, of course. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you put it, make it nice? It's uh, what I, okay. So before I really want to talk about these, these last two, but, um, you mentioned Oblivion. What do you think of the gravity business? <laughs> the movie Gravity. Have you? I, well. I love Sandra Bullock, but I don't think I can see it. <laughs> I don't know. Is, uh, is that out yet? Yeah, I think it comes out this weekend. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I will, I will have to it see it. I think I'm going to dread it because I just hate movies where I know people are going to die at the end of the movie because Based on what spoiler I've seen alert. in the trailer. Oh, no, 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 oh, no, 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 no. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. I, no. I, no, this isn't a spoiler. I'm simply saying, from what I've seen in the trailer, there is no scientifically plausible way they could possibly survive at the end of the movie. Yeah. And so it feels like it's going to be one of these, like, open water movies where you sit oh. for 90 minutes and then they just die in the end. And I just... <laughs> that that might be why I don't want to see that movie because uh, I remember when Open Water came out and I thought to myself I would rather die by means of Open Water than see the movie Open Water. <laughs> I think I, I agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that- Gravity. I'm going to have to see it because I want to see. I mean, it looks like they will have done one of the most plausible, you know, near Earth orbit scenarios I've ever seen in a movie. It looks cool, and it's just going to be like an excruciating two hours of like. You Maybe can't can... possibly survive. Or if they survive, it's going to feel, I see, it's going to feel really cool. Hollywood if they survive. I don't think that director does Would Hollywood. Do okay. <laughs> well, and you know what? Maybe I could watch it on Fast Forward. There's, there yeah. was a, there was a time when I was going to watch all of the AFI 100 movies. And then if I didn't like them, like if I, if they were too slow or if there was trouble, I was, I, I made a, a, a silent commitment that I was willing to fast for, forward through, you know, uh, Citizen Kane. And get this, I put in Citizen Kane, did not have to fast forward. Turns out there's a reason why it's one of the top 100 movies of the world, because it's fascinating. Anyway, so um, favorite science art pieces of yours. What are those? What are the, yeah. The, well, the, uh, oh, what did I actually write there? Yeah, yeah, you, I. Oh, 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 right, 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 right. So the other side of my job, though, isn't actually taking data and finding ways of visualizing it, but it's actually getting to create artwork to help explain science as well. Oh. So I do get to wear both the the art hat and the science hat quite literally in it. And the science illustration part has actually become one of the more the really the most enjoyable and gratifying things I've done for a while because there are some results that we have where you know we're we're putting out a press release and we want to get people interested in what we're doing, but the data it's based on is too, you know, visually uninteresting or too, okay. too difficult to understand visually that it would mean nothing if we put the data. And so there'd be nothing to draw people in. Okay. That's a point at which in science communication, we want to switch over and do an illustration to try to help communicate what's interesting about what you're about to read. Right. So the artwork, this, this uh, opportunity to do art that's motivated by science but ultimately has to be exciting and visual because, you know, we have a very sophisticated audience with movies like Star Trek and Avengers and, right. you know, the, right. what, what they expect to see, right? The, you have to, you have to show stuff 
to right. get them excited to want to know what it's about. Right. So if we have a, a study <laughs> about the discovery of an exoplanet around another world and we think it's interesting because we, because of its temperature or location, we think it might have clouds, you know, we got to show a really cool looking yeah. visualization of a, of a possible planet, you know, with an interesting cloud cover. Okay. And that catches people's attention. Yeah. And it also sets them up so that when they go in to read the story, they, they're sort of preloaded with what it's about. Okay. So um, it's been really exciting. We've gotten a chance to do a lot of the work for the Kepler mission on their exciting discoveries. Uh, the sadly, you know, the mission that's lost its flywheel, so it can't really do the the same exoplanet work anymore. What's the Kepler mission? Oh, sorry. So the Kepler mission yeah. is actually also an LA-based band, as it turns out, <laughs> <laughs> but is uh, uh, also a NASA mission to study a patch of sky in incredible detail, looking at like. 100,000 stars and looking for the faint hint of planets caused when the planets, which happen to be in the line of sight between us and the star, pass in front of the star and slightly reduce the total amount of light. So we're basically looking for oh. these planetary transits, these little kind of just like proof that micro eclipses okay. that, that occur in front of these stars. We can't see the star surface, but we can detect this minute, like, half a percent dip in the amount of light when the planet moves in front. Okay. And if it happens and again Kepler and again. And the Kepler would just look at that one patch of the sky Yeah, and just study forever. the same stars over and over and over again. Now, now it's okay. lost a flywheel, so it can't, it's, it's, I forget exactly, several mission, several years into the mission now. So we still have a huge data set to study of what we've got from Kepler, but okay. sadly it won't continue on that mission. But because Spitzer has actually worked to back up Kepler because once you have established a planet in the visible light, you actually can learn a lot by reobserving it in the infrared. Okay. Sometimes you can see the light from the planet. So, so Kepler is good at detecting the point at which the planet moves in front of the star. Sometimes Spitzer can detect the point at which the the the, the, the planet moves behind the star. And oh. the, the, the little dip of light, if the in the infrared, sometimes the planet proportionally is much brighter than right. You know, the ratio is better for the light it's... of the planet to the star. So you can actually see that dip. So you can actually measure exactly how bright the planet is in the infrared. Okay. Then you can start to piece together things like how hot the planet is. Or um, how big it might be. How big. Oh, you, right. well, you get the big from the, the when the planet moves in front of the star. Okay. But then, again, yeah, each... Each piece gives you a different... I'm adorable with my speculative science. You, you, you start synthesizing <laughs> it, and you actually really start to add together how big the planet is. You yeah. can actually figure out the surface temperature. You can actually start to figure out things about winds. If the, the bright spot of the planet lines up with the star, if it's rotated, there might okay. be winds blowing things around. A lot of cool stuff. But then, again, the data for that is very, very dull series of dots. Um, right. Very subtle signals that even scientists have to hunt for. All it is is a blink. So what you do is you you create an art image that makes that understandable, right. like you just explained to me. Right. But probably the the most wonderful piece I've got to work on was yeah. with a, a colleague, uh, Bob Benjamin, um, who's been sort of synthesizing a lot of the uh, the study on the shape of our own galaxy. Okay. And uh, which is actually really hard to figure out, right? We we know so much more about what Andromeda looks like or M83 or or uh, those are galaxies. Uh, those right? are galaxies, Got right? It. Because we're outside of them and we get to look back into them and we Got see it. what it is. Makes sense. We our Milky Way has roughly the proportions of a of a compact disk. It's it's very thin, okay. very wide, and we live smack in the middle like a third out from the center. Right. And we're trying to figure out what this galaxy looks like if you could move above it. By, by right. trying to piece out everything just crammed together. It's, it's like being dropped down in the middle of Manhattan and say, okay, show me a map of the entire island of Manhattan. 
just from where you happen to be standing in Times Square. Right, by looking up at the sky. Yeah. Well, no, by looking out through the building. You know, there are right. buildings in the way. I mean, you can right. see, you can, I mean, you can see the, the near streets, right? Yeah. You get that, the near stuff, you get pretty well. Then you start running into buildings that block your view of what's behind it. Right. And then you have to kind of start guessing. And then, then like, well, you know, uh, you uh, could use infrared, right? right. But, yeah. but then it's all like smushed on top of each other. And <laughs> right. how that's far a, away is that distant building? I mean, impossible. you know, that building's taller. Is it a taller building? That's further away or a shorter building that's nearby. Right. It might kind of look the same. So, yeah. so it's a really challenging task. So, you know, astronomers have been hammering this for, for, you know, a century, you know, trying right. to figure out. And, um, Bob's been doing a lot of work in the infrared and, and doing counts of stars in different directions that let us tease out things like there's a bar that runs through the middle of our galaxy. Not, you know, well, there is probably a little bit of alcohol in it, but, but not, right. not the, you know, <laughs> not a dance bar, not, not the bad pickup line kind of bar. It's actually <laughs> stars that kind of line up in just a, a straight sure. linear structure. Like an axle. Like an axle. Yeah. Yes. And, um, the, you know, being able to refine where it is just by doing subtle statistics on counting the numbers of stars in different directions of the sky. Okay. Or studying dist- or, or radio astronomers looking at gas clouds across throughout the, the, the sky and looking at their relative velocities and, and being able to apply models and invert that out and figure out where the clumps of gas are and where the spiral arms in the galaxy are. Right. So a few years ago, I got a chance to work with Bob kind of collecting together the best of what's known at the time to okay. make a, uh, a roadmap to the Milky Way, basically. Uh, wow. Sort of a top-down view of our best understanding of what the galaxy looks like from above. Right. And But it was a piece of art, so it had to be a complete visual. So I took, you know, I would look at mo- uh, pictures of other galaxies as a motivator of what galaxies kind of look at like. Right. Then we would compare radio maps and, and um, uh, uh, precise measurements that are made to certain known uh, star clusters or, or, or star-forming regions and overlay that and then overlay what we know about the bar from star counts and overlay what we know about which arms have good over-densities of, of, of star counts in certain directions on sight lines. And, and you sort of lay all these pieces out and you yeah. start trying to piece together, okay, this is what we think the best view is. Where we don't know it, then we just sort of fill it in with, you know, symmetry. Like, well, we know there's an arm over here, so let's go ahead and put another arm over there to match it. You know, right? And we know what these other galaxies look. And like. And we know what these other galaxies look like. And so you kind of motivate. So, so there was a, a lot of wow. sort of equal parts of art, artistic synthesis as and and scientific like diagramming and and you know, distant scales are lost. So you have to decide and, on the scale and make it all match that. And, now, and then is that the is, is is are you creating the art that goes with essentially his paper? It was or? with a press release. Okay, but that particular piece of art now has gotten picked up and run everywhere because no one had really done a, a, yeah. a, a solid attempt to do this in in. A long time. Well, really, ever. Not with this kind of approach. Right. And uh, just getting the idea that the Milky Way is a barred galaxy was kind of yeah. into museums was a new idea, even though we've sort of known this scientifically since the early 90s. Uh, okay. Uh, but what, what's happened is then that piece of artwork has actually now, in three different occasions, matched scientific discoveries. No. That, uh, probably like, like hell of a guess, Robert Hurt. Like hell, that, of, yeah. nice work, man. The uh, uh, I mean, the most exciting one. A couple more kind of obvious. There was a symmetry. We knew that there was like this near feature, and well, let's assume right. there's one or the other. Uh, the probably most exciting one was. Um, it's very hard. The farther out in the galaxy, it is the harder it is. So the the yeah. far side of the galaxy, the data is kind of sketchy, and sure. um, we were sort of filling out. We knew there was an, a part of an outer arm there that we filled in. And then uh, we knew on the near side of the galaxy there was an arm that sort of swung out. And I sort of got to this point where it's like, okay, well, 
by symmetry, it looks like there ought to be more of an arm here. And so I sort of made an artistic choice of where the outer arm should fall and, yeah. and laid it out. Like two years later, I actually got an email from another scientist, Thomas Dame, who actually studies a lot of radio maps of gas in the galaxy. Okay. And he was in the process of publishing a new paper on the faint detection of this outer spiral arm. Yeah. And he wanted to know what data sets I had access to because where I put that arm exactly matched <laughs> the, not, not the location and the length of the what? data he found by studying the hydrogen gas out there. And he was like, did, were you working with some other data set? Yeah. And I just sort of, um, <laughs> no, I just, you know, we knew, we knew stuff. a part of it. Yeah. And then I really just looked at the other arm and I'm just like, you know, well, if we, I just made kind of a symmetry argument right. and sometimes that artistic balance actually presaged what came from the science. And it, genuinely, when you think about art, the link between art and science, it makes so much sense just because art is, I mean, if you look at Michelangelo, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, the perspective and, and I have studied a small amount of art. So, I mean, but it's always about perspective. It's all, always about symmetry. It's always about trying to make things fit and look right mm-hmm. when you do realistic, right? Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't that make so much sense that the science but it's a hell of a guess, man. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, it's, you know, I mean, nature is filled with symmetries. Right. And art plays off of symmetry. And so the idea of filling in parts you don't know yeah. via symmetry. It was very flattering. Uh, Bob Benjamin had an invited lecture at one of the American Astronomical Society meetings a couple of years ago on the right. Milky Way structure. And when he, um, he showed the artwork, he actually proposed this to the, the community as not a piece of artwork or visualization, but as a, as a scientific model. Wow. That, you know, the idea that there is a kind of model you can approach where we don't, even areas we don't have data to project that using things like, uh, like symmetry arguments, you know, that is as much a valid model as something that's from a rigorous, a different kind of rigorous math. Yeah. And the fact that the artwork has actually been, you know, reconfirmed several times. That kind of validates so it to cool. the level of being a, more than art. You know, so somewhere, yeah. not just art, right? It is yeah. the, a where the scientific science. model. Yeah. That's, and where now? Where, what? What is the? What's the name of that piece of uh, art? Uh, probably if you just Google "Roadmap to the Milky Way," you find to it. The Milky it's, Way. it's on the I, Spitzer. I will link that up. Yeah, it's on time. the Spitzer website. So that is awesome. So. Is there now we're we're getting uh we're getting close here to an okay. hour. It's okay. almost over immediately. That's the way of the dork forest. Ah. You start talking about the thing you know, the thing you love, and then an hour goes by almost immediately. Of course it does. So uh <laughs> but what is deep impact recipe? And what oh, is new star was, black hole? Oh that's right. Yeah, just a few other the, the fun visualizations we did that yeah. were not data based but but uh uh but art based. Art based how to approach something. Uh the um uh Deep Impact was a mission that NASA sent out. Um, it actually recently, they, in fact, they just announced this week that it, they lost contact with the probe, but okay. it's, uh, it's primary mission was of a resounding success. It actually rendezvoused with the comet and f- dropped off an impactor that slammed into the comet going hundreds of miles an hour. Okay. And at, in the process kicked up a plume of material that spewed out of the comet that Deep Impact and then telescopes all over the Earth and in space all observed. To understand what what is a comet made up out of, yeah, and these ideas, you know, when we see a comet, we only see the stuff on the outside and stuff that gets blown off. Our idea was, well, let's actually just blow it up 
right. and look at all the stuff that gets kicked out of the inside. So, right. you know, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it's like dissecting someone to, you know, yeah. uh, and, um, Spitzer's contribution was, uh, we did, had infrared spectroscopy of that material. We, mm-hmm. we took the light in the infrared, broke it up into its constituent wavelengths and we made it, we, we, we plotted, you know, a squiggly little line graph, but each, Component, each mineral, each each uh, 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 molecule has unique fingerprints in in light that it emits. That certain wavelengths that each one. Oh. And so, by looking at these squiggly lines and where the little peaks show up, you can actually reverse engineer and figure out what it's made of. Oh. And so, it's from saying, Spitzer, cool. we were able to pick, combining the Spitzer data with ground-based data, we were able to get a very good uh, recipe for how you make a comet. Uh, all the different minerals and, you know, carbon monoxide and, and water we knew about, but, okay. uh, specific kinds of minerals and compounds yeah. and proportions. So w- we wanted to come up with a way of making this little squiggly line exciting for our press release. And we realized what's more interesting than the squiggly line is what it told us about the con- components. We actually came up with this idea of making a photograph of all the things that go in to make a comet done up like a cooking recipe. Yeah. And, and so we, we called up the geology department next door and said, Hey, would you be willing to like give us like all of these minerals for a photo shoot? So, oh yeah, come on over. Oh. So we went through. So we had the laundry list of these are all the things deep impact on. They, they took us through. Oh, they had this wonderful little room filled with little drawers and little like little Jevonite minerals here uh. and little, little crystalline particles here. And, and, and we, we just scooped it all up into little measuring spoons and had a cup of dry ice <laughs> and a cup of regular ice. Sure. And, um, and Did my you have colleague. The proportions? Uh, we, we didn't do the right. portions. Sure, the, sure. You do what you can. Uh, do what you can. We wanted it visible, right. enough to be visible on all the pieces. And, and my, uh, my colleague, Tim Pyle, who's an artist, who, mm-hmm. you know, sort of artist interested in science, uh, counterpart to scientists interested in art that I am, yeah. uh, actually made up a little, um, menu card, like, like a page out of a recipe book, yep. you know, with all the ingredients yeah. listed. And we, we arranged that all together and made a photo of it. Neat. And that was actually a really popular way of showing, you know, the constituents of a comet. And, oh, that's awesome. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Is it um, everything that makes up a comet? Is it? Um, do we have it on Earth? Yes. Okay. Yeah, everything so, that we detected, we have on Earth. So, so the universe which is, seems to be make, made up of the same stuff. Very much so. Well, in okay. fact, that makes a lot of sense because we actually think that the way we got a lot of the organic materials and the the uh, things like water on the Earth after it formed was that it was actually delivered here by comets. Okay. In the, there were a lot more comets in the early solar system. They're the debris left over from the formation of the planets. They're the right. stuff that, that you know, formed further out, was colder, was icy, and collected. But it's all being kicked up and stirred in. And, and you know, start okay. every time it something gets kicked in the inner system, there's a chance of, like, slam into the Earth. Okay. When there's more stuff flying around the solar system, there's a lot more impacts going on. Okay. So we actually think comets are... Like a kind of preserved uh, uh, petri dish of the stuff that su- actually got dumped onto the surface of the early Earth okay. after it cooled and, wow. and was forming, and became where we got our carbon dioxide and our water, and maybe even some of the uh, the organic material constituents that that you know that led to the uh, life. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. And what's a new star black hole? Oh, and another one was um, New Star is a new uh, X-ray observatory that Caltech has launched uh, with uh, funded by NASA to study uh, the hard X-rays, the highest energy X-rays. Okay. And uh, their images are very kind of fuzzy, but they, they they actually can make images out of hard X-rays. And what, but again, what's interesting is what they deduce out of those images, and uh, they had a really amazing result which is just mind-blowing, trying to deduce 
the idea that black holes, which are these, these collections of mass so dense that nothing can escape. They're basically singularities of gravity that, that we know exist at the centers of, of galaxies that, um, Wait, that bla- you can't see into. Is a thing? It's a thing. It's a, it's not a it, hole. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hole in the fabric of space time caused by a collection of mass so dense that th- there is only a path in. There is not a path out. Okay. And so light, material, everything right. goes in is just in forever. There's only, the only possible directions are down. Okay. There are no up once well, you get past a certain threshold. Right. But, and it, so, but it's made of something. But it was probably. And it collects things. And it collects things. And All things right. can fall into it and then it gets bigger. And then it just gets bigger. Yes. And we think the core of every galaxy has a supermassive black hole of, you know, millions of times more massive than the sun. Okay. And, uh. Just holding on to everything but we don't, else. We can't, we, we, we can't see them, but we can see how they affect other things. Oh. Like in our own, in our own solar system, in our own galaxy, in our right. own Milky Way, uh, we actually can look using infrared light into the core of our galaxy and see the very brightest stars. And we look at them, you know, month after month, year after year. And we can actually see stars. I mean, whole stars bigger than the sun mm-hmm. orbiting something we can't see. Several of them we've uh, we've been doing this since uh, uh, the the 90s. Uh, Andrea Gez at UCLA is actually one of the, the leaders of this effort. She and by track the so she's gone back year after year and tracked the stars in the center of our galaxy. They move something. and they move. Now, seeing something move in our lifetimes is amazing in astronomy. Seeing it move month to month. Is astonishing, especially when it's something as huge as a star. And right, wow! Even the nearby stars, year to year, are only moving, you know, like like tiny fractions. And we're very close to them. This thing is like, you know, a bazillion thousands of light years away. But by doing so, you basically can plot, calculate. Like we know how much ma- we know how far away it is. Right. We've measured its path. You can calculate how much mass has to be there. In order to cause a star to orbit that like that, we are that. not seeing that right. we cannot see. Right, and you do something you know, on the order of like several million times the mass of our own sun, <laughs> and there's nothing we can see there. And so you figure out the only thing in physics we have to explain that is a black hole. All right. In other galaxies, there is a lot more material in the centers of galaxy the galaxy than just stars. There's gas and dust, and again, if there's a black hole there, that stuff is all going to get spun up into a disk that's rotating around it, and as it um, the, the friction, the, the viscosity the, of the disk causes drag that causes it to eventually drop down, fall into the black hole, feeding the black hole, making the black hole bigger. And, and we can see the disk. We can't see the black hole, but we can right. see these, you know, these right, disks. The things heading towards it. And so what New Star did was <laughs> it looked at a uh, spinning disk around a black hole in a nearby galaxy, and it measured very precisely the sort of the, the hard X-ray spectrum. Okay. And it saw sort of a weird feature in that 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 spectrum that indicated that this disk was had a had a basically the light was being changed from the disk by the black hole a little bit and the and it's very complex models but what it boils down to is there's this weird thing that you can do in the math even though this black hole doesn't really have a physical surface yeah. it can still have a rotation and the rotation uh-huh. has the only effect the rotation has is through general relativity on how it redshifts the way it changes. Like you look on one side of the black hole and light 
moves differently around one side than the other. You gotta look close. You gotta look what close. You're saying. And so even this thing is like tiny. I mean, the, the, the actual surface of the black hole, or the, 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 not the surface, thing the, that you the, can... the, the, the edge of the event horizon yeah. is, is like way smaller than the inner solar system. And yeah. in this is a galaxy, you know, millions of light years away. By studying the way the X-ray light is distorted in that area and the way light is, is, is reflecting off of that disk in the X-rays, and, and how it changes the shape of the line, they can actually deduce the black hole is spinning at what, what they can call a, a critical level. It's sort of the fastest rotation the black hole could theoretically have. Right. Based on the disk. And it's like, like cool. weird mind numbing stuff all from like a squiggly line. Yeah. But then getting a chance to do sort of the, uh, the, the canonical, what the disk would look like around yeah. the black hole illustration for that was phenomenal and reddening one side and brightening up another and, and, and trying to fold in a little bit of relativity into that diagram yeah. to help sort of set up that story it was again, one of the more interesting pieces I've had to work on. So cool. So cool. All right. It's, we're at an hour, but I want to know what the B- Babylon 5 uh, <laughs> connection is. Oh, the Babylon 5 connection, Because we could With the Robert Hurt, you can always just do a Babylon 5 episode. You can do a Star Trek episode. You can do uh, my, my Starship collection episode. Your Starship collection. I actually... Uh, a lot of people can talk to me about Babylon 5 and Star Trek. I don't know a lot of people that can talk to me about their Starship collection. I, well, I'm, I am a connoisseur of Starships. It's, That's it's, uh, uh, sure. I know a lot about that. We'll but. have you back. <laughs> no, so uh, obviously there's a lot of sci-fi love in the office. Sure. And uh, Tim Pyle, I mentioned, is uh, also a big Babylon 5 fan and Star Trek fan. And yeah. We, yeah, we always have our little geek debriefs, you know, when we're working on projects. <laughs> but we did have one uh, press release some years ago that involved uh, finding. A, a studying the properties of a disk of debris around the star Epsilon Eridani. Okay. And um, uh, true uh, sci-fi aficionados may know that that's a very special star system for many ways. It's one of two proposed locations of Vulcan. Oh, uh, really? Though the in the soft canon, it's the less favored location of Vulcan okay. than uh, uh, the the other system. But but it is also well established in canon as the home of the Babylon Five station. Around oh. orbits Epsilon three, which is you know would be the third planet in the Epsilon Eridani system, and since we were doing this visualization of the system, and Tim and I are both big Babylon five fans, we we sort of thought like, oh, we should really we should put some little homage into that, and right. so Tim actually was doing the art for that one, but we we talked about it and we came up with. If you look at that piece of art very carefully and you study one of the nebulae near the planet, if you look very carefully, you will see the faint silhouette of something that looks vaguely spider-like. Uh, to a Babylon <laughs> 5 fan, you would recognize it as the silhouette of the shadow vessel. Ah, the floating shadow off vessel. <laughs> you know, I've never watched that show. Ah. Uh, Tamara Boyd used to take me to task uh, about it. Uh, well, I, I, I will too. It's a classic. And But I did have as an acting teacher once Carrie Dobro. <gasps> oh, Carrie Dobro is wonderful. She was, uh, of course, in in uh, Crusade. Uh, the she was the uh, uh, the, is that a spin-off? The, the, the spinoff series of Babylon Five was. Was Crusade. she in the original Babylon Five too, or no? I, she might have done a guest role, but I'm not sure. But she was a regular. She was a uh, uh, like one of the leads, one of the leads on leads, yeah. on, uh, on Crusade. Okay, and hilarious! Holy uh, crap, she was a funny woman. And she was one of the leads in a little-known sci-fi morning uh, Saturday morning show called Hypernauts. Hypernauts. Uh, yes. Animated or uh, a live action? Live action. She All played right. an alien in Hypernauts. 
excellent. Very uh, cheesy, but she was really good in it. She was the best part of the show. She is, uh, she is, exudes charm like, uh, a faucet. Uh, she was an, and Owen was a great teacher. So, um. Nice. Robert Hurt. But the, but the, 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 that, I, I, I should go on record though. To date, that is the only sci-fi Easter egg we've ever put in a piece of art. Okay. And we hit it there. To my knowledge, no one ever independently discovered it. Right. But we, uh, we did kind of announce it publicly in a couple interviews we did on Science Viz. And at one point or another, somebody on Facebook, oh, oh, the Babylon 5 Facebook group actually, um, stumbled across the reference to it, dug it up and actually put a little post there, got nice. a lot of commentary and really pissed off one guy that, that he just, we got this, this really bitter <sighs> letter at, at, uh, uh, in the office about like, NASA should fire anyone who wastes public funds, uh, uh, you know, oh, I, I freaking bossy Magoo. The funny thing is, Everything got smooth. We, we wrote back a very clean, uh, uh, oh, response to the guy and pointed out that the actual press release mentioned Babylon 5. Because when right. we were setting it up, we, we actually said, you know, this system is, is well known in science fiction. Um, we, we just, you know, pointed out it was not intended to deceive. It's very different. Like if I had gone and I had taken an image from Spitzer, like data yeah. and yeah. like faked something in there. Oh right. god, the conspiracy theorists would be all over that. Right. That we right. do not do. That we do not do. <laughs> right. We will we will go in and we will clean up artifacts in images because you know, the like any uh, camera, there are flaws yeah. that, that will happen. A bright object can create well, UFO. sort of the equivalent of lens flares. Okay. Which look like physical objects, but they're not. So we and do you have can a, tell because they they're in every image. Right, they're in every okay. image. There's you know, there are a lot of well characterized effects that occur that yeah. we know are not physical objects. And that is one thing we will do as in general on, on, you know, all the telescope facilities will do this. We'll clean up artifacts that could be mistaken as actual objects that right, aren't. Right. And oh, that's, look, it's God. And, uh, oh, right, right. And it's funny. <laughs> He's that, flying by that black hole. That seems unlikely. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. I, in fact, one time we released the same re- image a couple times over a few years and the first image I didn't have time to work on. And when I did, I went back and I cleaned it up a little more. And someone actually within a week or within a couple of days wrote back, oh, I noticed there's a difference. There's a skull-shaped object that was in this one image, not the other. Could that have been a planet that was passing through? Everyone loves – I mean, it's mind-numbing. People actually People go want. They want they, so much. They want to find those things. And yeah, I want so, it too. But I mean, sadly, they don't want it. planets and asteroids, they're pretty hard to find. They don't look very interesting. And the thi- if it looks really cool, it's probably <laughs> – it's probably, probably a detector error. Dust. Dust. It might be a scratch. We're yeah. very sorry. <laughs> oh my god, this was the greatest episode. Thank you so much, Robert. Oh, I'm sure you say that to all of your nerds. I say it to a lot of them, and you're one of them. For the love of God, Robert Hurt. That was awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Well, that show was awesome. Let's do the credits. Patrick Brady, he fixes the audio every week. He also does the teaser videos on YouTube. So Patrick Brady is an awesome guy, and I thank him for his work. Mike Rickberg sang the song you heard at the beginning, composed and sang it with his girlfriend Sarah. He's going to sing in about a heartbeat for uh, the Mexican hat dance. And Vilmos fixes my website, JackieCation.com. So support him and his work. Thanks a lot, you guys. Take care out there. Bye. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat. <laughs> my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh my god. Thank we you. why don't we just call that as the end of the show?